The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. The Old Boy Network, also known as the Old Boy Society, Good Old Boys Club, or simply Good Old Boys. An informal system in which men with similar social or educational backgrounds help each other in business and personal matters. The term initially referred to social and business connections among former pupils of male-only elite schools. However, the term is now also used to refer to any closed system of relationships that restrict opportunities within the group. This can now apply to the network between the graduates of a single school regardless of gender. An old boy society is like an alumni association a network of social and business connections among alumni. The phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know, is associated with this tradition. An old boy network is an inside track, one with connections to powerful and ambitious individuals formed through work, professional and community service organizations, and private clubs, such as the Benevolent and Protective Order of the Elks. Also known as the Elks Club, or simply the Elks. With a simple one-story brick windowless lodge at 61 West Elm Street in Canton, Illinois, fraternal members gather for fellowship, perform acts of community service, play cards, eat steak, and drink cocktails and beer served up by attractive young ladies in three-piece tuxedos with frizzed hair and bow ties. Across town to the north, Canton Senior High School, a four-year school serving the communities of and within the boundaries of Canton School District Number 66 that currently averages about 750 students a year. CHS provides a comprehensive educational program and a two-story, elongated, mid-century building that lies with the land. The building houses 40 classrooms, a library, a chorus and band room, two gymnasiums as well as a vocational wing with a metal shop, an agricultural shop, a greenhouse, and a wood shop an automotive shop, and out back, a series of baseball fields in an enormous football stadium where fans gather under the Friday night lights to cheer on the little giants. Go, purple and gold. The mission of CHS, to serve as an advocate for respect and responsibility and to provide a positive attitude to graduate students capable of making educated decisions, enabling them to become confident, self-sufficient, productive citizens of an ever-changing global society and as all high schools tend to do, to turn a blind eye to cliques and bullying, and to the boy who arrived late for class coated head to toe with rancid oil, after being dipped head first into the grease trap out back the cafeteria by the varsity team. A good old boys club where star quarterbacks are shooed away from cornfield parties before the others are written tickets for underage drinking, and running backs are allowed to arrive just in time for kickoff, after that high-speed joyride, police on his tail, cheerleader by his side. These will one day be the good old days. And you're a good old boy, so go on and get, and stay out of trouble, because me and your pa go way back after all.
and such was the case when Terry Haynes arrived at the Canton Police Department to be interviewed concerning the suspicious deaths of Donna and her daughter, Justine Tompkins. You see, the difference between David Haynes, trust officer at the National Bank of Canton, no relation, was that Terry Haynes was a fraternal member of the Benevolent and Protective Order of the Elks. And David Haynes, well, he was an outsider, having relocated to the community just a few years back. Terry, he was born and raised in Canton, schoolboys at CHS with Sergeant David Ayers, drinking buddy with many of the officers up at the Elks Club Bar, housed in the Carnivorous Lodge on West Elm, where drinks were served up under buzzing fluorescent light tubes. Tin-point elk hung on the wall with dark, glossy marbled eyes, as though maybe he'd had a few too many himself. As Terry entered the interview room, the lead detective on the case, Sergeant Ayers, welcomed his longtime buddy with a slap on the back, telling him not to worry at all. Just protocol, he said. Sergeant Ayers then exited the claustrophobic interview room as Illinois State Police Special Agent Kedzer and alcohol, tobacco, and firearms investigator Smith entered, notepads and files in hand. Ayers leaving his old boy Terry, assuring him with a wink before closing the door. Settling in his plastic chair, elbows on his knees, poised that things would not take too long, Terry told the investigators that he had known Donna since August of 92. He explained that he was a UPS driver and met Donna delivering packages to the National Bank where she worked, in her residence. He told him that he had dated her for two or three months before they split up in late October. Yeah, we had sex, he said, and that after the relationship had ended, they'd remained good friends. No, he said, he'd never had a key to any of Donna's residences. Last time I saw her, he said, I guess it would have been about a week before the fire. I'd stop by to give her a Christmas present. She'd be getting back into her faith and went to this Catholic retreat in Peoria to clear her head. So I had a religious card framed up for her. She gave me a big hug and kiss when I gave it to her. And then I left. That was it, the last time I saw her alive, said Terry. Investigator Smith then asked Terry if he knew anyone else Donna had been dating. And Terry said he knew she'd been seeing a guy named Rod Franciscovich. And that Donna had told him a guy named Rudd Hadsel had been flirting with her quite a bit. And that they started kissing, he said. Guess it got out of hand real quick and she had to stop him. What else can you tell me about Mr. Hadsel? Well, he worked at the National Bank with her. And I'd heard up at the Elks that her boss Dave Haynes and her were having an affair. I guess Dave's wife found out about it. Do you know this for certain or was it more like a rumor, asked Investigator Smith. I suppose it was more like a rumor, said Terry. Investigator Smith had inquired about Donna's divorce from her husband, John Tompkins. And Terry remarked, John's an asshole. Hell, he was always calling Donna up and hanging up on her right when she answered, you know, like a prank. But it was more like harassment. But he never came around. He'd never pick up their daughter, Justine. He never spent time with her or took her on the weekends. Do you know if John was paying child support? I know he was way behind. Donna had agreed to settle the divorce for 10000 in child support just to get it over with. And I guess he was ordered to temper control counseling through the mental health department. Investigator Smith asked Terry where he had been on January 12th and 13th. And Terry stated that on Tuesday the 12th, he had arrived home from work around 5, 5.15 p.m. He ate dinner, then headed up to the Moose Lodge, where he played pitch until 10, 10.30. Can anyone collaborate your presence at the lodge that night? Asked Special Agent Kedzer. Well, I talked to Terry Wagner for a while. And Charlene Barclay was bartending that night. I sat next to Ron Ford at the bar. And what'd you do after you left the Moose Lodge? I went home and went to bed. Alone? Yes, alone. And what about Wednesday, the morning of the 13th, asked Investigator Smith. Well, I picked up Dad and we headed to Lewistown around 8. Ate breakfast at Hilda's Pantry. 
Then we headed over to the courthouse around nine. I had to appear before a judge on a uh, an unrelated criminal matter, confirmed Investigator Smith, jotting on his legal pad before Terry could answer. Then at around 11.25, Dad and I headed back to Canton. I was driving by Donna's house, as I usually did, and that's when I saw the fire, the bodies being carried out. And what did you do after you saw the fire and the, the bodies? Well, I dropped Dad off, and then I drove over to Rod's a while later, around 1 p.m., I guess, and I told him that Don and Justine were both dead. The investigator shook Terry's hand as he agreed to a lie detector test and thanked him for coming in on such short notice. Sergeant Ayers awaited Terry in the hall, once again assuring him as they walked from the building to his car and that there was nothing to worry about. The lie detector test is just protocol, says Sergeant Ayers, and the two chatted for a minute, and it was all over in 29 minutes flat. On January 21st, 1993, Special Agent Number 214 with the Illinois State Division of Arson Investigation, Fire Marshal Anderson, made the long drive back to the Central Illinois community from Chicago to continue his investigation into the two fatalities that had occurred a week prior. Fire Marshal Anderson had been previously informed that Donna Tompkins had purchased a hide bed from a guy named Donald Bull, a local furniture delivery man who went by Donnie. He met up with Donnie at Wright's Furniture, a large brick building just off the town square. Donnie was a tall, well-built, good-looking young man with a full head of dark brown hair and a bold mustache upon his thick upper lip. He told the fire marshal out back behind the warehouse, packed full of recliners, beds, ottomans, tables, nightstands, that he had met Donna at Barbecue Roundup, who had arrived with a woman named Iona Price. She was looking for a couch, he muttered in a relatively uncomfortable and soft-spoken voice, while avoiding eye contact and lighting up a Marlboro cigarette. She asked if we had anything here at the store. And what was your reply, asked Fire Marshal Anderson, whose official presence made Donnie stir in his boots. I said I had to hide a bit, and I'd give it to her for 75 bucks, said Donnie. Donnie told the investigator that Donna had agreed and that he offered to deliver it for her. She called the next day and said she wouldn't be home, he said. Asked me to go on in and bring it in the apartment, so I did. Donnie said Donna had told him where she lived, 365 South 1st Avenue, the door on the south side of the large Victorian home. And how did you access the residence? She said she'd leave the cash and a key in the mailbox, said Donnie. He then told Fire Marshal Anderson that he had delivered the hide-a-bed before Christmas and found the key wrapped up in the $75 cash in the box. He said he assumed that she had called from work at the bank but that he was unsure and that he basically went in the apartment and out. Did Donna ever attempt to reach you by telephone again, asked the investigator. No, said Donnie, head down. Can you describe the height of bed? Material? Color? It was cotton. Cotton fabric? Yeah, tweed cotton fabric. And this height of bed belonged to Wright's Furniture, asked Fire Marshal Anderson. No, I bought it in Pekin from Fulton's, I think. And do you recall when you purchased the height of bed from Fulton's in Peoria? Four, six years ago? By my in-laws, he said. And can you recall anything else about the couch or your conversation with Donna? Asked Fire Marshal Anderson. Donnie shook his head and muttered no. And realizing he would not get much more out of the nervous man a few words, Fire Marshal Anderson informed Donnie that the investigation was ongoing and that they would be in touch. A few days later, 
Terry Haynes arrived at the Bureau of Forensic Sciences Laboratory in Morton, Illinois, a little over an hour's drive to the northeast, a few miles past the city of Peoria, and just across the banks of the Illinois River. There, he was examined by the polygraph detection of deception technique by state police examiner Terrence McCain. As Agent McCain hooked Terry up to the machine, he began with a pre-interview, asking Terry general questions about himself and the case to better understand the issue in question, and to listen to Terry's narrative and views on the fire and of Donna and Justine's deaths. This enabled Officer McCain to observe Terry's body language and how he presented the case while he told his side of the story which further assisted in the detection of deception. Officer McCain informed Terry that the examination aimed to investigate whether he was involved in setting a fire at Donna Tompkins' apartment on January 13, 1993, or involved in causing the death of her or her daughter, and that the purpose of a polygraph test or examination, also more commonly known as a lie detector test, was to detect deception or to determine the probability that someone was telling the truth or lying in response to specific questions. A polygraph test records physiological bodily changes that occur in a person when they are asked questions about a situation, event, or action that they have been accused of, or it had been suspected that they were lying about, or to rule them out. Procedurals, said Officer McCain, just as Sergeant Ayers had put it plainly. Research, he went on examination and studies within psychology and the behavioral sciences have identified that some bodily functions react to fear or threat in specific ways and that lying can induce this state of fear and anxiety in a person causing these functions to react officer mccain tells terry that the sensors used within the polygraph test will record blood flow and blood pressure heart rate and pulse body temperature galvanic skin response in other words sweat production of the hands respiration, and movement of the body or fidgeting. Sensors were then attached to Terry's torso to measure his respiration, and a cuff was placed around his arm to measure his blood pressure, and clips around his fingers to measure his pulse and sweat production. His bodily responses associated with fear or threat included the increase of blood pressure blood flow as his body readied itself for conflict or escape, increased body temperature due to the activation of muscles in preparation for this imminent need for activity increased sweat production in his hands to improve grasping to assist with any conflict or need for escape that may be coming, and reduced respiration rate as his airways dilated to assist with any immediate need for physical activity. But no physical action could occur, so breathing would become more effective. Movement of Terry's body or shifting fidgeting was due to his difficulty keeping still when the adrenaline had been released into his body in response to the perception of threat that Officer McCain induced with his words. The examination will be an intrinsic part of identifying deception, and the polygraph examination does not just involve asking you questions, Terry. It is far more complex than that, he said, as the officer knew with experience that the different forms the test would take would not be apparent to Terry's uneducated eye. Questions Terry was asked during the polygraph examination have been carefully formulated and ordered by Officer McCain. And Officer McCain discussed with Terry all that needed to be clarified and asked him if he had any questions. Terry said no. Officer McCain, having already gathered the supplied information about the case to formulate the questions to be asked and how to correctly word the questions for the polygraph examination to achieve valid and accurate results, began the test with innocuous questions intended to create the right psychological environment to achieve the greatest clarity from Terry's bodily responses that would be recorded. 
In other words, these questions prepared Terry psychologically and physiologically for when he heard the mention of the specific issue and the questions pertinent to the case. This seemed to develop tension within Terry and determine the salience or significance of particular matters to him so that his bodily reactions were heightened and a more significant differentiation was achieved between his responses to the hot topic and their baseline functioning. These irrelevant questions were trivial and insignificant. As he asked Harry, what day of the week is it? What color is the wall? Had you traveled to the test by car? Had you ever cheated on your wife? Have you had sexual intercourse with a family member? Anal sex with a man? Officer McCain included such questions which might have induced Terry to deliberately and knowingly lie about something inconsequential so that Officer McCain could observe and record Terry's physiological responses that had occurred. Then, the real questions began. Officer McCain, on January 13, 1993, did you start the fire at Donna Tompkins' apartment in Canton? Terry, no. McCain, did you set that fire at Donna Tompkins' apartment? Terry, no. McCain, last month, did you cause Donna and Justine Tompkins' deaths? Terry, no. McCain, do you know who set the fire at Donna Tompkins' apartment? Terry, no. Once the polygraph examination was completed, Officer McCain used the data collected through the sensors attached to Terry's body. He analyzed it through data analysis, interpretation, and scoring. Once data analysis and scoring had been completed, Officer McCain delivered the results to the lead detective on the case, Sergeant David Ayers. The results. During the examination, the subject denied having any involvement in the aforementioned incident. There were erratic and inconsistent responses on the subject's polygraph records which preclude the examiner from rendering an opinion on the following questions. On January 13, 1993, did you start the fire at Donna Tompkins' apartment in Canton? Did you set the fire at Donna Tompkins' apartment? Last month, did you cause Donna and Justine Tompkins' deaths? Do you know who set the fire at Donna Tompkins' apartment? All answered no. All inconclusive. Respectfully submitted, Terrence G. McCain, Polygraph Examiner. Question. Terry, may I call you Terry? Terry, last month, did you cause Donna and Justine Tompkins' deaths? Answer. Erratic and inconsistent response which precludes any rendering of opinion. Terry, good news, you're in the clear. You're free to go. The old boys club. It's not what you know. It's who you know. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson 
Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>